0: Well, welcome, welcome. If we haven't met, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and truly excited to have you with us this morning. If you're just joining us, uh, we are in, I don't know, what are we, week six, I want to say, of our series in uh, Revelation. And, uh, you know, when we began this, I had a little bit of hesitation because I knew that this was going to be tough and challenging for some people, uh, depending on your background. I'm pushing back on some... some some deeply held beliefs, you know, and, and depending on your background, I'm, I'm figuring out slowly that some people in their background, they are actually, it was like their, their end times kind of theology was, was like married almost like, on a, like to the same level as the gospel, you know. Uh, it's like Jesus died for your sins and also the world is going to burn and you're going to be saved before it does, you know, and, and I'm pushing up against this and, and, and uh, for some people I know it feels like I'm really messing with some foundational stuff. And so, last week, I was informed uh, after the service that we had several people uh, in both services walk out. And so, I just crunched some numbers really quick, and we had about 2.5 to 3% of the people who were here walk out. And, and I was bummed about that, you know? Um, I really think if we apply ourselves, we can get to 5%. Um, so, you know, we're setting goals, and we're going to lean in. <laughs> and, you know, even after first service, you know, I had a conversation with with a guy who's been a part of Mosaic for a long time, and it's just really, he's really having a hard time with this, and he even told me, he's like, man, if I didn't have a relationship with you, and trust there, and been here for a long time, I would have walked out, you know, uh, and so I'm realizing, like, it's, it's tough, it's, it's challenging, and, and I want to acknowledge that on the front end. Um, what we're doing is, for many of us, depending on your background, I mean, I'm, I'm really presenting a new way of reading and interpreting the book of Revelation, but it's not a new way. <laughs> it's not a new way. In fact, many of the things that we're talking about way we were approaching the book, uh, many of them are actually far more consistent uh, with the last 2,000 years. Uh, what's actually new is the whole left-behind, escapist kind of theology, where you know we as Christians are going to get whisked away uh, to be with God somewhere else, right before God unleashes holy hell on the earth and destroys everything. That's a new way of reading uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, less than 200 years old. And what I've suggested in this series is that that kind of idea and way of looking at it has has actually very little biblical support. It contradicts largely 2,000 years of biblical interpretation. And just as importantly, it leads us precisely in the opposite way of Jesus and the way of the kingdom uh, that we're invited to live into. Um, So this morning, I want to kind of look at uh, the other side of the coin, uh, as it were, uh, about our conversation last week. Because last week we talked about what this... Kind of way of reading revelation and, and living this way, what it, what it creates in us, uh, and th- this morning I want to talk about what it suggests about about God, um, because if at the end Jesus shows up and slaughters everybody uh, we 've got a very different Jesus on our hands, very different Jesus, and yet this is often what gets taught, and I, I know you 've experienced this and you 've heard this and you 've seen it and uh, and it's kind of this idea that, man, Jesus is, is, is really angry. You know what I mean? Like, first, the first time we got, like, loving Jesus, but we get, like, angry, vengeful, pissed off Jesus when he comes back. You know, so, like, I asked you about your, your, at, your billboard or whatever. Like, I want to show you a billboard uh, that illustrates this well. Right? Uh, Royd raid Jesus. Right? You drew first blood, but I'll be back. <laughs> right? And with his muscles, he's shattering the cross, coming to make you bleed, I assume. Um, you know, I, or it's like the bumper stickers. If you've seen the bumper stickers that says, like, uh, Jesus is coming back and, boy, is he pissed. Right? It's kind of like that idea. Right? And so there's a really good illustration of this I put in your notes, if you got your notes. And I want to share with you a quote. Um, and this is kind of just illustrates this idea really well. Uh, this is a really well-known pastor who we aren't going to name. Um, but he has a really big platform. And this is a quote from him that was in a popular Christian magazine. This is what he says. He said, in Revelation. Jesus is a pride fighter, right? So not a prize fighter, that's it's not a typo. Pride fighter, right? As in MMA, right? A pride fighter is somebody you you, you put them in an, two guys in an octagon right with no no pads or, or gloves and their job is to annihilate one another. You know, and last man standing wins, right? It's a it's a bloody brutal sport, MMA. You know, and I of course follow Jesus so I don't watch or enjoy MMA at all. Uh, but I know there's some of you some of you sinners that do that we need to pray for. <coughs> Keith Tenney. Um, but he's saying, like, this is Jesus when he comes back, man. He's getting in the octagon with you, you know, or with, your, with his enemies. And that's his job, is, is to make people bleed. In Revelation, Jesus is a pride fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and a commitment to make someone bleed. This is a guy I can worship. Uh, because apparently, you know, the Jesus of the Gospels, who's all about love, is too weak, too sissy for this guy to worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up right? It feels very macho, you know what I mean? Like, ugh. Um, You know, but it's like the pastor just, it's like the pastor forgets, man. Like, you didn't just beat up Jesus, you crucified him. Uh, Put him to death. Uh, but, But this particular way of thinking, we don't like that Jesus very much. And if we're not careful, this is not a new idea, and it's not unique to this pastor. But what ends up happening if we're not careful is, and I think this is like just a warning for all of us. None of us are are beyond this happening but we if we're not careful we end up making jesus into our image we project onto him our beliefs and assumptions and ideas and and just make him sign off on it willingly or unwillingly you know so there's a quote that i've shared a few times and i for the life of me i can't find out who actually said it if you google the quote it's like you know 20 people everybody from steve jobs to abraham lincoln um but it's the quote, he uh, said, you know, God created man in his own image, and man returned the favor. And this happens really easily. Uh, so rather than coming to Jesus and, and letting him shape how we perceive God, how we understand how God works in the world, how we are called to participate in that work, how we're called to live and think about things like, like justice or, or violence uh, or the poor, or refugees, or the prisoner, uh, or our neighbors. Instead, we've, we already have thoughts and ideas and convictions and assumptions around these things, and we essentially just project them onto Jesus, Right? cherry-pick a few verses out of context to proof-text our ideas, and then we have, voila, like this version of Jesus who always agrees with us, who doesn't call us to give a whole lot, that doesn't call us to change our minds, and essentially signs off on all of our endeavors. And this happens all the time it happens a lot, in particular, with the book of Revelation. Because as we talked about, Revelation is not a literal thing. It's not a historical book. It's not wisdom literature. Right? It's Picasso. Right? It's an art piece. Uh, it's poetry. Um, and, and, <clears throat> and so it's easy to do. But if what this pastor is suggesting is true, and this whole kind of many and that whole kind of rapture, left-behind stream of thought uh, fall into this place and Jesus comes back as a cage fighter whose job is to spill the blood of his enemies, uh, then we, we have a very different Jesus on our hands. Um, I, I really can't think of a picture of Jesus that's more antithetical to the Jesus we find in the Gospels than that one. Um, and, and the thinking, you know, people will say something like this. kind of goes like this. You know, they'll say, well, you know, Jesus came the first time as a lamb, but he's coming back as a lion. You know, what they mean by this is that, that the, the nonviolent Jesus of the Gospels is essentially going to mutate into this hyper-violent Jesus in the book of of Revelation. And on a basic level, basically the way they see the Bible is this, is is after a long trajectory, a long trajectory away from the divine violence that we see in the Old Testament, culminating in Jesus, who renounced violence and called his his followers to love their enemies, uh, the Bible in its final vision abandons a vision of peace and nonviolence as ultimately unworkable, and then closes with the most uh, vicious portrayal of divine violence that we have in the entire Bible. Right? The first Jesus was in a good mood, but oh, you're not going to like the second Jesus. First, first Jesus was about love. The second Jesus was about wrath. Right? The first Jesus we know taught us to live, not live by the sword. To not resort to the old worn out way of violence. But rather to love our enemies. Right? That's what Jesus taught and modeled over and over and over again. In fact, he went out of his way to point out, "Look, I can call upon legions of angels right now to save me from this fate and to annihilate these enemies, these violent people who are killing me." But instead, he chooses to willingly die at the hands of his enemies and prays for them as they do. He models for us how to love our enemies, how to bless our enemies, feed our enemies, serve our enemies pray for our enemies, do good to our enemies, even as they threaten our safety or take our very lives. Right? He teaches us to swear off violence, to put down the sword, and if we're struck on one side of the cheek, to offer the other cheek to the person striking us, right? to love with our words and actions no matter what. But then we're taught to believe and expect that actually Jesus then is going to make an about-face 180-degree turn and come back and embody and teach the exact opposite of that. Right, you know, that whole love thing, that program is over, that was inefficient, it didn't really work, uh, so now it's time to make millions of people believe. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. You read it, essentially, even if you don't know that you're doing it or you don't mean to do it, essentially what you're doing is you're taking the symbolic, symbolic war of Revelation 19, and you're using it to silence Jesus' manifesto in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? And just as we talked about last week, when you do this, man, it has really, really disastrous consequences. Uh, because if Jesus gives up on love and resorts to violence, then surely there's times when it's okay for us to do that, right? Right, if in the end Jesus unleashes holy hell on earth before bringing about the kingdom of heaven, then surely there are circumstances when we can do this, the, the same thing. Right, if Jesus is going to come back and... And make 200 million people bleed and take their lives. And then surely uh, he won't mind us taking 100,000 lives at Hiroshima. It's dangerous, dangerous thinking. But how do we get there? How, how is it even possible? Well, it's possible when you take the book of Revelation, right? And it's symbolic and often ironic images and read them literally, right? And we have to remember constantly as we read the book of revelation that all of it is being communicated in symbol it's picasso you know so when you read about locusts that look like horses with human faces women's hair and lion's teeth that's a symbol uh, an army of 2 million soldiers riding lion-headed horses that breathe fire and belch sulfur right? that's a symbol a red dragon with seven heads in the heavens that sweeps away a third of the stars with its tail it's not literal right it's a symbol a seven-headed beast from the sea with the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, and the mouth of a lion. It's symbol. An angel in the sky with a giant sickle who reaps all the grapes of the earth and puts them in a wine press that generates a river of blood for 200 miles. It's not literal, right? It's a symbol. It's not an empty symbol. It's a meaningful symbol. But still, uh, it's, it's a symbol. And when you read it literally, though, man, you can come up with all kinds of crazy crazy ideas about what God is like and what God is up to and where he's taken this thing. So you got, we've got to dig deeper, right? And so today, what I want to do is, is I want to next just briefly look at what many people consider to be the most violent image uh, in the book of Revelation, and that's Armageddon. Right? Armageddon. I wanted to show a clip from Armageddon, but I didn't think about it till this morning. It's too bad. Um, and I w- could sing, you know, the theme song for you, but I want to have compassion on you all. But... Um, Armageddon, there, there's few pictures that have captured the popular imagination like Armageddon. Uh, it's all over the place. Um, and, and, and in this kind of like rapture-like thinking, that whole stream of thinking, Armageddon is thought of as like the main event that all of Revelation is building to, this final epic battle. So you have disaster upon disaster as the world just getting, it gets worse and worse and worse, war upon war, until finally you've got the great war, uh, the Battle of Armageddon, where Jesus uh, the warrior, right? The lamb turned lion annihilates his enemies and kills so many people that it creates an ocean of blood five feet deep, spanning from here to Kansas City. That's the thinking, and that is let's. I mean, I think we can agree that is a bloody, violent image, you know. And if that's what it actually says, if that's actually a literal thing, and we're to read it like that, well, then it's we can buy into this idea that Jesus turns violent, that you have the jackal Jesus in the Gospels, and then you've got hide Jesus in Revelation, who switches personalities. Uh, But is that what it says? And that's, that's the key issue there, right? So Revelation 16, 16, let's look at this. This is where it comes from, New Living Translation. And the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and their armies to a place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. Now, believe it or not, that's the only time in the Bible that shows up. It's the only place in the Bible you see Armageddon. Right, the way it gets talked about and speculated about and written about and all these different things, you think it's in there a hundred times or something like that, but it's only in there. uh, It's only in there one time. And Armageddon means, in the Hebrew, it simply means the Valley of Megiddo. And I actually have an image. If you want to throw that image up there, uh, of the Valley of Megiddo. Right. So this is this is uh, the ancient city Megiddo. You see the the valley. Uh, it actually, if you, if you look, I mean, it's a beautiful area, great place. It looks like to settle, gr- very green. You've got the Kishon River there. And it actually looks like it's built up on a hilltop, right, like on a huge mound. Um, that's actually not what that is. Uh, it used to actually be at ground level. But the reason it's up so high is the city has been destroyed and rebuilt 26 times. You know, and so what you're seeing is the city built on the rubble of itself. Destroyed, rebuilt, destroyed, rebuilt, destroyed, rebuilt beautiful area, but the the heartbreaking part about Armageddon is just where it's geographically located. It's geographically located in a geography of war. Right? So you had the Egyptian empire to the south. You had the Assyrian empire and later the Babylonian empire up to the north. And when they would go to battle, what often happens is this is where they'd meet. Right? They'd both leave their kingdoms. You don't want to fight on your home ground because war destroys everything. And oftentimes throughout history, this is where it happened. So 26 times the city of Megiddo is destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt, right? And so when, when the author is drawing upon this image of Armageddon using that name, that name means something to his original audience, right? It, it, it evokes pictures of war and destruction and loss, right? And so it's, it's not all that unlike me using the word, like, Waterloo, you know, or Gettysburg, right? For us in our history, right, that evokes... Uh, certain, you know, feelings and thoughts and ideas. Or like if I was to use the, the word Omaha Beach, you know. Um, when I say Omaha Beach, you don't think uh, Mai Tais, uh, or Or gentle, you know, breeze and beautiful sand and a gorgeous sunset. It's quite the opposite. When I say, you know, Omaha Beach, you picture bullets flying and chaos and blood and bodies everywhere. And, and so for us, you know, when, when I use that phrase, it means something, right? We think battlefield. We think destruction. We think uh, total human loss, right? And, and so it's the same way when he uses it here. He, it, it means something to his original audience. They would have immediately thought a uh, battlefield because of the history here. Now, popular imagination, right, imagines that this is like the war to end all wars. It's World War III, um, this time, you know, uh, at the hands of God, where he slaughters, slaughters a couple hundred million people, and and here's 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 why this is just I think so dangerous, and why we got to at least just say this out loud. Is if we're not careful, what it creates in Christians of all people are a people who long for and celebrate war. You know, and. Because we think that in order to get to the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, heaven, we've got to go through Armageddon to get there. You know, so every time war breaks out in the Middle East, right, there's an American Christian somewhere who says, oh, praise God. The end is coming. Jesus will re- be returning soon. You know, and I think at the core, the desire is honorable, the desire to be with Jesus. <laughs> you know, the desire for what is a tough, often a very tough life, at least this part of it to be over and to be with God in communion. That's a good thing. The problem is that whole theology way of thinking, a rapture left behind stuff, is that we think that we have to go through Armageddon to get there, which, for the record, is essentially the same theology as ISIS. And when you share theology, you start thinking and valuing the same things of, uh, as ISIS, probably about time to start rethinking some things. Right? And so you've got to remember it's symbol, right? It's Picasso. It's not empty symbol. In fact, it's deeply meaningful uh, symbol, powerful prophetic symbol, but it's symbol nonetheless. All right? so when it comes to the book of Revelation, right, Revelation is not a foretelling of geopolit- geopolitical events in the 21st century, right, which we've, we've talked a little bit about, but we're going to say it again. That's not what it is, right? It is a prophetic and deeply meaningful interpretation of the tumultuous events of the first century, Right, so the destruction of Jerusalem, persecution, the uh, destruction of the temple, right? and the Roman Empire as a whole, right, with its values, with its, with its, its unheated nationalism, right? and therefore also, by the way, a critique of all great nations, big, powerful nations that rule and value the same things uh, in the same way that the Roman Empire did. Right? So all that to say, so Armageddon is not something that is necessarily going to happen someday. Uh, Armageddon is something that happens all the time. Right? Armageddon, it, it's not an inevitability, but it is always a possibility. Right? When nations and their leaders think that violence can somehow put an end to violence, which history tells us is an incredibly foolish and destructive idea. Right? World War I was billed as the war to end all wars. You know, 17 million people lost their lives engaging in war, trying to end war. And what did it get us? 60 million people losing their lives in World War II. Right? What caused World War II? World War I. What caused World War I? Well, the same thing that causes Armageddon every time it happens. Right? Nations and their leaders trying to make their nation great again at whatever cost. Now, <clears throat> I'm not trying to pick on Donald Trump, I'm really not. Um, I'm going to share a tweet of his here in a moment. But you have to know something. I wish it was somebody else because, like, you all are well aware that he and I aren't drinking buddies. You know, we have some different ideas about things. Um, So I almost wish it was somebody else because I'm not picking on it. This is not unique to him. In fact, it's just a really good illustration of what is true of powerful leaders of powerful nations. And this is the thinking, all right? He's just trying to outgame everybody in the same old game. He said the United States must greatly strengthen and expand its nuclear capability— until such time as the world comes to its senses regarding nukes. Right? Nukes are a horrible idea, and until the world realizes that, we're going to get a lot of them. Right? This is the kind of thinking that, this, I mean, that John is prophetically criticizing, exactly this kind of thinking. Right? And if this is inspired word of God coming from Jesus, this is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is asking us to think critically about as well. Right? Armageddon is not something that is necessarily going to happen in a one-time event. It's something that happens all the time. It's inevitably what happens, right, when when we don't choose the kingdom away of Jesus. Right, because the way of Jesus is not to Armageddon. It's away from it. Right, the the way of Jesus leads us to the kingdom of heaven, right, what Revelation calls the New Jerusalem, and we don't have to go to Armageddon to get there, right? And so to put it as explicitly as I can— there doesn't have to be another war for Jesus to come back. But it's very likely there will be. That's, that's up to us. Armageddon is not just a one-time event somewhere in the distant future that is set in stone and absolutely going to happen. Armageddon is what when we, happens when we walk away from Jesus. We try to use force to stop force, violence to end violence. Right? Jesus, Jesus is not in the business of leading nations into wars. That's the Satan's business. It's not to be ours. All right? see, look, let me just show you how Armageddon ends. So Revelation 19, verses 11 through 13. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. Right? And so the final triumph of Christ, he's depicted as being on top of this horse. We're told that his name is faithful and true and the word of God. And this is the verse, right, that our unnamed pastor is drawing some of his his ideas from. Right? But here's a little challenge for you this week as you're sitting in Revelations 19. I'd really encourage you to just ruminate on some of this. Um, when we find Jesus in this place, first of all, notice he is not carrying a sword. We don't see anything in, coming from him that looks like physical violence. Remember what we find out about his sword is his sword comes from his mouth. His sword is his words. He wages war with his words, not with a sword to cut down everybody who disagrees with him. Secondly, notice like his robe is dipped in blood before the battle. right Before life has been lost in the so-called Armageddon. Right? No fighting's taken place, no one's been slaughtered at the hand of God. There's been no vengeance on God's enemies at the hands of Jesus. And yet we are told before any of that takes place that Jesus' robe is rubbish, dipped in blood. Right, this this is not the blood of people who disagree with him. This is not the blood of people. This is Jesus' own blood. Before the battle. Right? The battle's already been won. It was won by Jesus when he laid down his life willingly and spilled out his blood for you and for me. Right? The image throughout Revelation as it talks about Jesus, 28 times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is described as a lamb, as a weak little lamb, as a slain lamb, over and over and over again. In fact, there's this one part in, in, in Revelation 4 that you can look at for yourself, and it's incredible. Because John is in the throne room. This is where God rules and reigns, and he hears a lion, and he turns, and he's expecting to see the lion of Judah. Lion is a violent image, right? Violent uh, lions track down their prey, <laughs> slaughter them, kill them, devour them. And he turns to see what he expects to be the lion, and what's he see? he sees a slaughtered lamb in the throne room. Right? Anytime somebody says something, well, Jesus came first as a, as a lamb, that he's coming the next time as a lion, you just got to know there's no lion found in the book of Revelation. Nobody sees a lion. John expects to see a lion, but that's not what he sees. He sees a slaughtered, slaughtered lamb. Right? He doesn't see a muscular, moody, roid-rating Jesus, right? wielding a sword, looking to make somebody bleed. Right? He sees the slain Jesus in the throne room. Which, by the way, and remember, this is not future, this is present. This is how God rules and reigns. This is the way, right? And so he's seeing the slain lamb in the throne room, right? The, and, and, and so when Jesus was killed, that wasn't a mistake. You know what I mean? And that wasn't, that wasn't an embarrassing thing for God, right? And that wasn't a temporary thing where, yeah, the first time we're going to show love and grace, and you know, the self-giving love kind of thing. No, it is a, it is a part of the fabric, the way in which God rules and reigns, right? And this is what we find over and over again in the book of Revelation. Jesus is a lamb, not a warrior. Jesus is a slain lamb, uh, not, not a lion, right? Jesus doesn't shed the blood of his enemies. He, Jesus sheds his own blood, right? The rider on the white horse is the slaughtered lamb, not a slaughtering beast, all right, so Eugene Peterson says this in Reverse Thunder, which is a book I've quoted a couple times in this process, uh, in this series. And he says this, Look, the perennial ruse is to glorify war uh, so that we accept it as a proper means of achieving goals. But it's evil. It is opposed by Christ. Christ does not sit on the red horse ever. All right, so, so let's get clear. Jesus does wage war. But he wages war by self-sacrifice. Right, and he does not wield the sword. Right, he, he he he, his sword is his words, and his words are the words of life. See, if Jesus comes back, and the Jesus we get on the other side of the Gospels is a Jesus who just annihilates two hundred million people, then it seems to me that Jesus wasn't really telling the whole truth when he was here, right? because what Jesus told us is you need to take a good long look at me, because I am revealing to you the heart and the character and the nature of the Father. Right? he says this in John fourteen nine. He says anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Well, is that true or is that not true? Can we trust that or no? You know, can we, can we trust that when Jesus willingly goes to the cross and spills out his blood for us, that that is a reflection of the heart of the Father? Or is it really only a reflection of the nice side of the Father? Right? If Jesus is saying, look, in me, you're seeing God as he truly is. Right? He can't just be saying, well, you know, he doesn't say well, I'm showing you jackal, but oh, wait till Revelation, I'm gonna show you hide. You've seen the good side, just wait till I get up on the wrong side of the bed. Right, you've seen my love, but I'm gonna show you my wrath. Right, either we're seeing the character of the Father or we're not seeing the character of the Father. Right, Colossians 2.9 says this, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity of the Father lives in bodily form. Do you catch that? The fullness, not just a fragment not just a part, not just an aspect, not just one part of his character, but he says the fullness. The fullness of the heart and the character and the nature of God is revealed in Jesus Christ. So he's not just a buffer to show us the loving side while God's concealing the unloving side. Jesus is what God looks like. This is why Hebrews 1.3 says this, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the brightness of his brightness, right? When God shines, it looks like Jesus, right? The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, the exact representation, right? The Greek word there means essence, the essence of who he is, right? Meaning God is like Jesus all the way up and all the way down. You're not gonna find any part of God that isn't Christ-like, right? And the Christ we find in the gospels Right, is ministering to people and giving his life for people and praying for his enemies and loving his enemies and willing, willingly dying for his enemies. Well, that's the essence of who God is. Right, God is exactly like that, and that doesn't change. Right, which is why we find in Hebrews thirteen eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're not going to get one now and a different one later. He never changes. Right, because he's having a bad mood or because he changes his mind, which means that if he was about loving his enemies the first time, he's going to be about loving his enemies the second time. Right? If he was about turning the other cheek the first time, he's going to be about turning the other cheek the second time. If he was about preaching and modeling self-sacrificial love the first time, he's going to be about preaching and modeling self-sacrificial love the second time. If he was against violence the first time, he's going to be against violence the second time. Right? It means we are going to find one Jesus in the Gospels and a different Jesus altogether in Revelation. Right now, I know I can feel the tension. I can see it in the body language, right? And, and one of the questions I know that people wrestle with and probably some of us are feeling right now is like, what about judgment, right? What about judgment? Are you just saying that Jesus is gonna come back and just give the world one big hug and everybody gets in and blah, blah, blah. First of all, there's a lot of that. I'm, I'm not sure that like, we can know the details about, but what I do know, right, if you study the book of Revelation is there is judgment and, and we should expect that, right? If you study Jesus in the gospels, Jesus Let's, he gives people a choice. And some people choose to embrace him, and some people don't. And he doesn't go running after them and impose his will on them. He gives them the choice. And oftentimes he will give them more than one chance, but he still it gives them the choice. You know, and I think as it pertains to judgment, I think Revelation is clear there is going to be judgment. And it's not going to be good. Because for those who reject Jesus, I just think in the end God just gives us what we want. You know, and if you don't want anything to do with Jesus in this life, just so you know, you're not going to want anything to do with Jesus in the next life. Right? When you die, you don't become a completely different person with a different heart, different soul, different desires. Like, you're living in a trajectory in a, in a way, in and in a, your soul is, is heading somewhere. You know, and so the choice comes down to us. And I would say this, as it pertains to judgment, or if you say the Old Testament, most of the time, oftentimes when God judges, all he simply has to do is take away his hand. And let us destroy each other. And by the way, that's Armageddon. We do that all the time. All right? And so it, with the story of Israel, God does that a lot. He's like, he pleads with them. He's like, this is how you live in a way that honors me in which I'm going to just pour out my blessing. And then eventually they just don't want any of it. And so God just steps back. You know, and wars happen and all hell breaks loose. And eventually they fall on their knees and God in his goodness embraces them again. You know, so there is judgment. I just don't think that we need a different Jesus than we see in the Gospels for us to experience it. And ultimately, uh, the choice, the choice is going to be up to us, right? It's the same Jesus, which means even in judgment, right, Jesus will judge the same way that he leads, the same way that he rules and reigns, right? And that's with grace and compassion and leading with self-sacrificial love, right? He leads us in the kingdom way, right, towards towards the kingdom of God, which is what Revelation calls uh, the, new, the new Jerusalem. And that's where he's taking all of this. And we don't have to go through Armageddon to get there. You know, in the end, we have this incredible picture in Revelation of the kingdom of God. And, of course, a lot of it's symbolic, you know, but it's a meaningful symbol. You know, it talks about this incredible city where God's people are. And there is no temple. There's no need for a temple because God's presence is everywhere. You know, and we're told that we're not going to need the sun because God's presence just radiates. And it talks about, you know, just this incredible place. And it, it describes, I love it, you know, the, the actual, it gives you the dimensions of the city, which was actually the same dimensions of the Roman Empire. Uh, so again, like he's saying something about the kingdom of God replacing the kingdom of this world. But it talks about the 12 gates and the city has 12 gates. It says they're never shut. You know, that there is an invitation and an openness when it comes to God's kingdom way, God's kingdom of heaven, where nobody's disqualified, where the gates are always open, where God's Spirit says to all those who are on the outside, and even those who start on the inside, who bail and run, like many of us do, saying, come. Right? You find yourself broken and bleeding, come. You have a history of celebrating violence and war, come. Right? you got regrets, welcome to the club, come. You know, and so I want to close today as we, as we respond and worship, you know, and, and as we pray that God just seals this on our hearts uh, to take communion, which I think is such a beautiful picture of this as we reflect on the lamb that we find in Revelation, the slaughtered lamb who allowed himself to die on our behalf. And as we do, uh, first of all, I want you to know that if you're a guest with us, just like the city of God, the kingdom of heaven, New Jerusalem, the gates are open, right? Nobody plays goalie at the table of grace. All are welcome. You know, and even as we come up here as a church family and we respond and worship and we take communion, right, and we take that piece of bread that symbolizes Jesus' body that was broken for us and we dip it in the cup that represents Jesus' blood that was spilled out for us. Right, I want us to even picture, kind of in your sanctified imagination, if I can, to imagine coming to the city, the kingdom of God, where the gates are never shut. And we're all who are welcome. All right, so that said, Mosaic family, uh, we're going to stand. We're going to worship. Ask God to seal us on our hearts uh, and come to the table of grace where the gates are never shut. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right, let's do it.